Hello and welcome back to the Annex. My name is Coy and I'm here today with Simon Chernin and we're talking history again. Today we're going to be talking about the Cold War and some of the close calls between America and the Soviet Union. So I don't have to say much more today. Uh, I guess I'll just throw you right into our conversation. We go about an hour. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Simon Chernin. Okay. All right. So uh, today we want to talk some close calls. Close calls in uh, civil, uh, the Cold War. That sounds good. Are we actually live on the air right now? We're now recording, yeah. We are now recording. We're now recording. Okay. So welcome All back, right. Simon. Well, sounds good. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Always. All right, I just let the audience know, uh, apologies, I have a little bit of a cold, so if you have a trouble hearing me, uh, I do apologize about that. I took nice. some cold medication beforehand, so that hopefully should clear up the uh, stuff nose. Nice. <laughs> so we want to talk, um, yeah, so close calls, obviously the number one close call that everyone knows or thinks about with the uh, Cold War is the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I think it's a good place to start and maybe just do a little bit of a rundown. You were just saying. Sure. Well, we were just talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, This is an event that most historians consider to be uh, the closest call uh, of a nuclear conflagration between the United States and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this took place uh, in 1962. Mm-hmm. 13 days uh, in October. Over 13 days, yeah. Yes, it effectively occurred over 13 days in the sense of uh, the discovery of the missiles until right. the deal to remove the missiles. And is it the the film JFK talks a lot about this? Is that right? Uh, the film 13 Days talks a lot about this. Okay. Uh, the film JFK is by Oliver Stone. Yeah. A uh, great film. That's about the Kennedy assassination. Okay. We can talk okay. about that another time. Yeah. Uh, that's a black hole, as I previously mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. most complicated murder history uh, in murder investigation in history yeah. yeah it's effectively the most complicated murder investigation in history so we'll skirt I've tried that I've a number of times but I just, I just can't do it you don't have the clearance well it's not that I don't have the clearance it's more just that it's very very complicated and I think there are two major factors to it uh, and I think that, that that's what's causing the complication alright well let's skirt that issue and leave people wanting more um, so the, these 13 days we're looking at. Do you yes. Have, do you have yes. your coffee, by the way? Did you bring your coffee? Oh, uh, I have a uh, Pepsi here. Okay, brought to you by Pepsi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure if Pepsi Co is actually sponsoring this event. No. Maybe. We can call them maybe because of the shout out. Well, that's very, very true. Uh, it is it is a delicious drink, by the way. Well said. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so back to these 13 days. So we're in 63, you said. Is that right? Uh, 62. 62, okay. So it's in the lead up actually to the uh, U.S. midterms. Oh, okay. Uh, in terms of the midterm elections. Interesting. Uh, the Kennedy government had uh, warned uh, the Khrushchev government. Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev was uh, the head of the uh, Communist Party in mm-hmm. Russia, so effectively uh, the premier of the of the Soviet Union. Okay. And uh, the Kennedy government had uh, asked the Russians uh, not to provoke anything that would cause an issue before the elections oh really they specifically said like hey russia we have an election coming up can you chill out 
Uh, they did, yes, yes, because there was also close calls before. There was the Berlin crisis in nineteen sixty. Uh, there, there was uh, American tanks faced off against Soviet tanks uh, at the border crossing between East and West Berlin, and uh, that was also a close call in the Cold War. We won't get into it in detail just because it's a not as interesting of a story. Pass me a pen there. Just going to make some notes. Oh, of course. Yeah, just so we can come back to this. Yeah. So okay. So nineteen this Berlin crisis. I want to maybe come. We can maybe pop back to, but uh, so in sixty two. America says very nicely, please don't f- fuck around. And just like Russia did with the recent 2016 election, they totally stayed out of it. Uh, they did not. Yes, just like in the tw- well, <laughs> <laughs> just like in the 2016 election, there was effective interference. Uh-huh. Uh, in this respect, it was not so much interference in terms of them trying to affect the U.S. domestic election. Mm-hmm. It was more just a timing matter that they just simply just didn't listen to U.S. diplomats. Or maybe they did and effectively like, and, and intentionally worked within those time limits. Well, it ended up ultimately, I mean, ultimately, I mean, the resolution of the crisis uh, put the Kennedy government in a good light. And mm. so it actually helped them with the midterms of 62. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But uh, the basis of the crisis was that the United States ha- had missiles in Turkey, Jupiter mm-hmm. missiles. Uh, these were intercontinental ballistic missiles. Okay. And uh, they were right on the border of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union considered this to be a threat. And uh, after the Cuban Revolution, they started arming, arming the Cuban regime. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind putting uh, missiles, uh, nuclear missiles, into Cuba was really to try to equalize the playing field, in a sense that the United States has missiles right on the border of the Soviet Union. Right. So we're going to put missiles right on the border of the United States. Right. Fair is fair, kind of idea. Uh, effectively, yes. But, but that I mean, was their rationale. But I mean, this is also just ninety miles off the coast of Cuba, and so they off were, the coast of Florida. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, sorry, off, off, off the coast of Florida. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they started secretly putting missiles in for a number of months and mm-hmm. installing missile sites. This is all in secret. Mm-hmm. And eventually an American U-2 spy aircraft uh, took photographs mm-hmm. and were able to photograph missile sites. Right. Uh, this went straight to the president. Mm-hmm. And uh, the president formed what was called uh, XCOM. Uh, the executive committee of the presidency. Also a successful video game franchise, but anyways. Fair <laughs> enough on that. <laughs> uh, and so it was effectively the heads of all the major agencies of the United States in terms of intelligence and defense. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also representatives from the military. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, Curtis LeMay, uh, who was uh, head of SAC Strategic Air Command. Uh, this was uh, the uh, bombing, uh, the nuclear bombing arm of the United States Air Force. Oh wow! Okay. And so uh, all the bigwigs. Yes, yes. Uh, and so these missiles were being installed secretly, uh, but the United States discovered them. Right. They did not let the Soviet Union know because they were deciding what exactly they wanted to do about it. Okay. It was, so yeah, there was a great debate within the administration as to how to handle the situation here. Hmm. In the sense that there was a number of options on the table. Okay. 
One would be a military strike uh, from the air to destroy the missiles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And another would be an invasion of the island itself. And did they know exactly where all... In order to seize the missile sites. Yeah. uh, And to prevent this from ever happening again. Oh, and just take control of Cuba. And to take control of Cuba, yes. To overthrow the Castro government to ensure that this would never happen again. Which is a pretty extreme option. Uh, A pretty extreme option, having said that... They discovered eventually that there was about 90 SS-4 missiles had been placed in Cuba, Mm -hmm. uh, putting uh, the entirety of the United States, except for Seattle, within range of those missiles. Wow. 90? Yes. That's a lot. Yeah. Yes. Uh, What the Americans didn't know was that there was also 60,000 Soviet troops in Cuba. Oh, wow. Wow. And so that was only found out years later. And so had there been an American Marine invasion? It would have been full-scale war. Uh, well, there would have been a bloodbath on the beaches, certainly. The Americans would have ultimately prevailed using overwhelming force in the region. Sure. Uh, but they did not know about the presence of those troops. I'm just going to move this microphone a little bit closer. No, of course. Uh, and so... The two options, again, that were laid out on the table initially mm-hmm. was an airstrike or an, inv- or an airstrike followed by invasion. Right. But also the, the problem with an airstrike is that they don't know if they've found each one of these because if they missed one or two. Right? SAC had advised that they would be able to get at least 90% of the missiles. Yeah, but it only takes one missile to take out a city, right? Uh, that's very true. Yes. Yes, and so it's and so uh, therefore, it's possible that they could have carried it on an airstrike, and uh, a few missiles could have been fired, uh, because that would have led to full scale war. Now, again, part of the reason why the missiles were put into Cuba in the first place was, as I said, to try to equalize the playing field. Mm-hmm. But also, the Soviet Union was way behind uh, when it came to missile development. In the mm. sense that at the time, the United States had around a thousand intercontinental ballistic missiles based in the United States. Mm-hmm. The Soviets had around four. It, wow. And so the missiles that were placed in the Cuba were medium range missiles. Right. The Soviets were way behind in technology at that time. Okay, so this is still pretty early, right? Yeah, 62. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so those were kind of the options that were on the table for the United States. But uh, Kennedy and his brother, Robert Kennedy, uh, they were very, very close. Both assassinated. Both assassinated, yes. Uh, But uh, they were not happy with those two options and wanted a further option to be put on the table. And so they went to Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, and McNamara advised that there was a potential third option, Mm -hmm. which would be a blockade of Cuba. So this guy, McNamara, actually introduced the third option. Uh, he introduced the third option, yes. Wow. Now, a, blo- now a blockade is considered uh, under international articles to be an act of war. And so... Which also invasion and airstrikes would be as well? Uh, those would certainly be an act of war. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay, but this now, is a non... Now, 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 now yeah. of course, the problem with a blockade... Mm-hmm. is that you're not removing the missiles that are already there. You're just preventing further missiles from being placed onto the island. Right, right. But it could lead to a situation where there are negotiations between the two nations. 
It's an option that doesn't involve shooting first. Yes. Yes, correct. Right. And so about four or five days into the crisis, uh, Kennedy uh, went on the air to announce to the American public that the United States was facing a very, very serious crisis, that missiles had been placed into Cuba. Uh, He said poignantly that uh, any attack on any country in the Western Hemisphere is considered to be an attack on the United States. Wow. It will require a full retaliatory response against the Soviet Union. Okay, he drew the line in the sand that it was us and them. He did. And he also announced uh, the blockade, but they called it a quarantine. Okay. Because, again, a blockade is an act of war. So can I do a little tangent here? Of course. I was in Venice recently. And um, Venice is one of the few places in Europe that uh, survived quite well uh, during the Black Plague, Black Death. And one of the reasons they were able to do that is um, it was by by quarantining ships. And the reason they were able to quarantine ships was because they actually had Arab and Jewish doctors because it was a very multicultural city. So you actually had, it wasn't just kind of dark age European medicine. It was also um, Muslim and the medicine that's been kind of kept for thousands of years and developed and, and, and you know, rudimentary science-based medicine. Uh, so it was those doctors, not necessarily the Christian doctors, who said, well, this is the amount of time it takes someone to get sick. If we keep ships in the harbor for 40 days, quaranta, then if right. anyone's still left alive, then they've obviously not been infected. Right. So quarantine right. is based out of that quarantine, which is the 40 days. I did not know that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, that's where the phraseology comes from. That's exactly, yeah. Etymology of that word. Yeah. Nice. Just nice. a kind of cool little thing. Yeah. So, right, cool. Interesting. Yeah. So now it means to isolate until certain. Now is what the meaning is now, right? Right, right. Yes, yes. And, and, and today, I mean, it's used uh, as a medical term, effectively. Yeah. But here it was just it was a term used by the U.S. government because they didn't want to use the term blockade. Right. Anyways, yeah. Going back, so they used this quarantine of Cuba, as they called it. Yes. Uh, and so the quarantine was announced, and uh, the U.S. Navy uh, blockaded Cuba, mm-hmm. uh, preventing any uh, ships uh, that were potentially carrying arms or missiles to the country mm-hmm. uh, to enter the country. Mm-hmm. And. The Soviet ships that were sailing towards Cuba ultimately turned around uh, as a result of this blockade. Now, there was, if I do remember correctly, because this is, as you said, this is one of the most famous ones. And we're going to get past this one uh, move on to others after we cover it. But there was like a a Russian U-boat in the region that decided not to fire on an American ship, right? That is, that is correct. Uh, there was a Russian submersible. That had uh, rather vague orders uh, in terms of uh, it was ordered to protect certain merchant marine Russian ships mm-hmm. that were headed to the region. Yeah. And there was a U.S. aircraft carrier that was there uh, as part of the blockade. Right. And so this was actually one of the truly closest calls of the Cold War. Uh, but uh, there was a decision on board between the captain, the political officer, and the executive officer. 
in terms of as those three as men. To, as to whether to fire men. a nuclear torpedo against this American carrier. Had they done so, this likely would have spiraled out of control into a full-scale war between the United States and the Soviet Union. So and, it was this and, interpretation and, by three men, three Russian men, on a submarine that was out of radio contact, interpreting a vague standing order yes. that potentially yes. prevented a war. That's absolutely correct. Wow. Uh, and it was the captain uh, and the political officer voted in favor of firing the nuclear torpedo. And it was the executive officer who voted uh, against. Uh, and uh, they needed Russian unanimous. rules at the time was that they needed a unanimous consent amongst wow. those three officers in order to launch a nuclear torpedo. So I'm going to take another tangent there because this is interesting because forming consent is a really interesting political thing that we don't think about a lot in the West because we, we base so much of it on majority uh, in terms of how we make our decisions in Western cultures. And majority is an effective way of forming consent, consent building, you could call it. Um, but different cultures and governments over time have different methods, right? Unanimity, unanimity is one form of consent building. It's like only if everyone says yes, do we do it, even if it's only one person saying no. Because in an American two versus one concept, you'd say, well, obviously they would have done it and if and you just telling me right now if i were to tell you there was an there was a submarine let's say an american submarine uh that had uh kind of unclear orders the exo the uh, political officer and the captain well they wouldn't have had a political officer would it have just been the captain and the exo so let's say but there's three people let's say there's three well, people there's in also this the weapons officer so perhaps. let's say yeah so let's say there's three people and they have to decide whether how to interpret this uh this standing order and i told you without saying what the who voted in what way i said two voted one way and one voted the other you would think okay well then they obviously voted not to do it two versus one sure but that that the russians required this unanimity and that all you needed was one person to say no they did uh during the cold war Really up until 1996, when the rules were changed, uh, when it came to United States ballistic missile boats, mm -hmm. uh, you had the captain, the EXO, and the weapons officer. Mm -hmm. And the weapons officer was the only person who knew the combination to the uh, safe, uh, which held, held the keys. one of the keys. As order, exemplified uh, in Crimson in, Tide. As, as, uh, as exemplified in Crimson Tide, yes, uh, yeah. in order to fire off ballistic missiles, yes. Right. I just think that consent building is very interesting. So... Um, I've heard there's also, um, and I don't want to like butcher myself here, but I've, I've heard that, uh, certain indigenous, indigenous communities in Canada have, um, different forms of consent building, which is that like, everyone must say yes. Uh, so there's like these two forms of consent building that I've heard from my mother, uh, that, which she's worked with, and I'm not going to cite the wrong one, but it's that, um, there's the two ways are the first one is unanimity. So everyone says yes, or everyone says no. Um, and the other one is that no one says no, which is different than everyone saying yes. Right. So you say like, should we do this? Everyone has to say yes. And for another type of decision, a qualitative based, you decide, you say, as long as, as long as nobody says no which means you can abstain because people do and in the first in the first option abstaining would mean not everyone says yes 
therefore you don't do it. Right. And the second option, abstaining still allows it to pass. Sure. Right? Sure. Which is interesting. Yes. Okay, anyways, going by, I think, yeah, because consent building uh, is, is a very interesting topic just in general, especially because we... Well, I uh, don't disagree at all. And we find it so simple that's like 5149 in, in a lot of the Western nations. We're just like, well, therefore, majority rules. But Well, that's a majoritarian system. Yes. Exactly. But there are other systems, and I think they apply. You have to really do a qualitative analysis in terms of which one's better. You know, the majority system isn't always the best under certain decisions. Sure, sure. I, I, I mean, it depends on the kind of decision that we're looking at. It yeah. depends on the kind of form of government that we're looking at. Yeah, or community or whatever. Yeah. Sure. So this Russian sub decided not to attack, not to send a nuclear torpedo at a aircraft carrier, which was an incredibly brave move. Uh, yes, and so you know, in terms of the executive officer, uh, well, he's one of the few people we can give sort of credit to. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, well, saving the world effectively. Wow, and I bet it was an unpopular decision at the time. Uh, well, it was unpopular with the captain and the political officer, uh, but uh, the the rules were the rules. Right. That's required unanimous consent to those three officers. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said no. Wow. Uh, so that was one of the closest calls uh, as part of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, certainly. Right, within the crisis itself. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. And I bet America didn't find out about that until much later. Uh, they did not. No, no. Uh, they only really found out after the Cold War when uh, certain records were declassified. Right. Oh, by the way, <laughs> um, anything else we want to cover? I mean, at the end of the day, the quarantine worked. Russia backed down. Then they decided to disarm those well, missile well, sites. Well, 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 uh, well, the, well, the thing with the quarantine, right, mm-hmm. uh, is that it doesn't actually remove the missiles on the island. Yeah. So the Russians decided to acquiesce in terms of turning their ships around, mm-hmm. in terms of bringing further weapons and missiles. Yeah. But you still had the missiles on the island. You still had a significant Soviet troop presence. Which that was unknown at the time. And so how did, uh, the, the significant Soviet troop presence was unknown at the time, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was just thought that there were Soviet uh, operators who were operating the missile sites themselves. Okay, yeah. Uh, and uh, so... What ended up happening really was that uh, the United States received uh, a letter mm-hmm. uh, from uh, the desk of Nikita Khrushchev himself. Oh, wow. And uh, this letter was interpreted uh, by the CIA as having come from a man uh, under a great deal of stress, uh, potentially even intoxicated. Okay. Uh, he was talking about how, you know... Uh, Two countries had tied a knot, and if you pull too hard, that knot will break, and we don't know what the result's going to be. Mm-hmm. And effectively, he offered in that letter terms whereby if the United States offered a non-invasion pledge for Cuba, then Russia would remove the missiles. Okay. So this was well accepted by uh, the Kennedy administration. Right, yeah. In a sense that this is actually not such a bad deal here. Mm-hmm. The problem was the next day they received another letter whereby it seemed as if it had not come from from Nikita Khrushchev himself, but from the Soviet government, from hardliners in the Soviet government. Right. 
and who were demanding that not only would the deal involve a non-invasion pledge, but the U.S. would have to remove its missiles from Turkey. Okay, so an additional demand, basically. Uh, an additional demand, and uh, this was something that the uh, United States uh, was not was not prepared to do. Mm-hmm. Those Jupiter missiles uh, were obsolete, so it wasn't so much a matter of, uh, and this is from a military perspective, that they needed those missiles there. It was more so that they were concerned about getting into a situation of trade after trade, and eventually it would lead to Berlin, and they couldn't trade on that. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and so they adopted a strategy, uh, which is quite interesting, of ignoring the second letter hmm. and responding to the first letter. Huh. And so they responded to the first letter saying, uh, yeah. you know, we basically we have a deal here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Soviets uh, subsequently announced uh, on uh, Moscow radio that uh, a deal had been struck and that the missiles would be removed from the island. Wow. So I, I had no idea that that the Cuban Missile Crisis is also kind of one of the reasons why America allowed Cuba to remain sovereign all these years and never just invade and take over or do something because of the deal that was struck after the crisis. Oh, it was because of the deal that was struck out uh, after the uh, crisis, yes. Yes. Makes a lot more sense. Now, why... now, having said that, that wasn't entirely the deal. Okay. There was a secret clause to the deal. And the secret clause to the deal was that the United States would actually remove the missiles from Turkey, hmm. but they would do so six months later. And the United and and the Soviet Union cannot uh, gloat about that, ah. because the United States didn't want it to be seen to be having backed down in that respect. Okay, so it was a back channeled part of the deal. It was basically a back channel part of the deal. Yes, hmm. and so six months later, those missiles from Turkey were uh, removed. Cool. Wow. Yes, but you know there was U.S. military commanders who thought that this was uh, a major back down on the part of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a great deal of pressure uh, on the terms of the Kennedy government to strike Cuba. Uh, and so in terms of their finagling uh, and, and putting in place this blockade mm-hmm. and putting in place this deal, well, this was very, very tough because this was a pressurized environment. Yeah, in 13 where, days. Yeah. Whereby the Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted to strike the island. Yeah. Uh, Curtis LeMay, head of SAC, uh, he called the whole thing a defeat, for hmm. example. Hmm. Well, good thing John Bolton wasn't there. Uh, it is a good. It is a, it is a good thing John Bolton wasn't there. Yes, <laughs> yes. Although uh, Kennedy's uh, national security advisor was in favor of, uh, I think it was uh, McGeorge Bundy, uh, was in favor of uh, full invasion, stri- striking uh, the uh, missiles and uh, invading now. Wow. And so most of XCOM was actually in favor of that. Wow. Uh, and same with our congressional oversight leaders who were brought into the loop. Yeah, they also wanted the strongest possible response. Wow, I this, guess because this was seen as a major, major provocation on the part of the so on the Soviet Union. It was mm-hmm. not to mention initially when they discovered the missiles, they didn't know what the Soviet plan was. Right? Mm-hmm. They thought that maybe that the Soviet Union had changed their defense posture to being a first strike posture. Right. Well, and this is also when America still has, as you had said earlier de facto global military superiority. Uh, they did. They did. So it, they weren't, 
it wasn't like later in the war when the fear of retaliation became absolute global annihilation in the same way. Not quite in the same way, but had those missiles been fired off from Cuba, that would have resulted in uh, incredible casualties in the United States. And they were uh, nuclear weapons? Uh, they were uh, SS-4 uh, Sandal missiles, yes. So nuclear? Uh, nuclear tip missiles. So you would have irradiated much of the states? Uh, yes, yes. And uh, that would have been obviously uh, a catastrophe beyond catastrophes. Yeah. Okay, so... Having covered the most popular one that many films and movies have talked about, um, <laughs> what other what other close calls can we look at uh, during the Cold War? Well, you had mentioned the Berlin Crisis in 1960 a little just just earlier. Well, there was the Berlin Crisis. Yes, uh, this is where uh, the Soviets uh, had wanted uh, the Americans to extricate themselves uh, from West Berlin. Hmm. Because the Soviets considered Berlin to be one of their great prizes of the Second World War, and was deep inside the Soviet territory. Right. After the war, Germany was broken up into various elements: one controlled by the Soviet Union, one controlled mm-hmm. by France, Britain, and, and the uh, United States. Mm-hmm. Berlin was uh, decided to be divided between uh, the Western and Eastern Allies. But Berlin itself was within Soviet region. It was very much within the Soviet region. Yes, and this was a. Uh, uh, considered a major headache for the Soviet government in the sense that they wanted complete control of Berlin. Okay. And so at, at one point, uh, there was a situation where there was just a, a buildup of tanks on both sides, mm-hmm. and they were facing off against one another. Okay, in Berlin. Uh, in Berlin, yes. This uh, is before the wall was made. Yes, uh, and this is at the border crossing. Wow. Uh, and uh, eventually, uh, cooler heads prevailed, and those tanks withdrew. Mm-hmm. But had there been a hot-headed commander who had opened fire, yeah. well, who knows what the result could have been. That would have been the start of a yeah, tank f- siege, tank battle in the middle of Berlin. Uh, yes, and, and again, when it comes to these states, the Soviet Union and the United States... Uh, this, is why, this is why I'm pushing it closer, because you're pushing it back. Oh, sorry. Apologies. <laughs> That's okay. Apologies about that. <laughs> Uh, you 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 don't know uh, if if a hot war starts in any sort of capacity, mm-hmm. what that could possibly lead to. Right, of course. Yeah, one thing can just very quickly get out of control. Yes. So so the wall was in effect a way to prevent something like the Berlin crisis happening again. This kind of like enemies, armed troops facing each other across a line. Well, what's very interesting about the wall, uh, it was actually to prevent uh, Eastern uh, separatists or refugees. Well, it was effectively it was effectively to pre- to prevent Eastern Berliners from crossing over to Western Berlin, right? Because uh, you saw, I mean, you know, kind of a mass exodus was taking place to go into the Western side, mm-hmm. uh, and so the Soviet Union decided to build a wall dividing Berlin, which is crazy because it wasn't a wall to keep people out, but a wall to keep people in. It was a wall to keep people in. Yes, yes. Uh, interestingly, Kennedy was uh, actually ecstatic about uh, the building of the Berlin Wall. This was he never publicly announced that. Really. But privately, he said a wall is better than a war. Right. Interesting. And so, if this is what the Soviet Union strategy is to build this wall, well, then fine. That sort of effectively ends the Berlin crisis. It makes that it much less mean- of a hot zone. Uh, it makes it much less of a hot zone because the Berlin crisis really was these refugees moving from East Berlin to West Berlin. Right. And this sort of 
ended the crisis effectively. Right. And then started a number of incredible spy movies. Yes. yes. <laughs> or uh, the basis for what would later become, I should say. Uh, that is, incredible that is spy ab- films. That is absolutely the case. Yeah. Um, so what, what, what other, what other uh, like close calls we have between somewhere between 1945, 1950 and all the way up until 1980, what was it? 86, 89 when the well, wall fell. Um, well, what are some close calls that people might not be uh, well, super aware of? Probably, and many, histor- many historians now are, are of this opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 1983, uh, there was uh, an operation called Able Archer 83. Okay. Uh, and I believe personally that this was the closest call, even closer than any aspect of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wow. To a war between the United States and the Soviet Union. This was when the Cold War was back on. Reagan is now president. Right. Reagan is uh, giving speeches talking about uh, the Soviet Union as an evil empire, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, denouncing uh, the Eastern Bloc as effectively a slave bloc. Wow. Uh, And so this was language uh, which uh, really put uh, a fright into into the Soviets. Because mm-hmm. it was after years of detente, uh, which had taken place during the Nixon administration and Kissinger, which le- which uh, lowered uh, the volume in terms of intensity, as you said, in, t- in terms of the intensity of, of the Cold War. What makes and, sense? And so really, that, Reagan's yeah. election to Cold War was now back on, and in a big, big way. Well, I guess when you have Bush was a. Uh... Well, I was just looking this up. He was a an a, a veteran of active service in Vietnam. I think he survived a helicopter crash, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry, Bush. Who who was the before Reagan? You're saying? Sorry, yeah, H.W. Right. Uh, George H.W. is the president after Ronald Reagan. Oh, okay, who are we talking? Nixon. Nixon. Sorry, I was thinking about Bush. Uh, Nixon. Nixon. Uh, Nixon never fought in Vietnam. Uh, he was he was the president during. Most of the, uh, during the second right. No, I was thinking of HW because HW was also the head of the CIA at one point, right? No, uh, he was the head of the CIA, right. and uh, he was a, actually a uh, decorated fighter pilot during the Second World War. Okay, he so flew, I go- okay, yeah, he uh, flew off aircraft carriers. Okay, I got us off topic. So, um, so Reagan is heating things up. So Reagan is heating things up uh, in the sense that his uh, rhetoric is uh, very, very frightening to the soviets and he's antagonizing the soviets as opposed to just being kind of two sides of of, of a cold war he's now making them seem well, well he was effectively giving speeches saying demonizing you know, that, them. you know the american public shouldn't look at this as you know both sides have gotten into an arms race and that both sides are to blame he was he was arguing that you know no one side is to blame and that's the soviet union mm-hmm. and we're on the side of good and they're on the side of evil and one of his most famous speeches uh he called them uh, the evil empire. Well, it makes sense. He was a capitalist. That he would, well, well, he, as a pro-capitalist, well, 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 he would well, frame communism. He was not only a capitalist, as... but he was, a, he was an adamantine anti-communist. Right. But it makes, you know, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of differences. And I'm not necessarily saying Soviet communist Russia was good in any necessarily way. But... Largely, it was a, a difference of, what was it? What would you call it? Um, economic regimes. 
Well, I would say uh, it really had to do with power and global power and global reach. But, I mean, the, the core difference between the Soviet Russia and America was that one was a capitalist state and one was a communist state, right? Uh, that's uh, certainly correct, yes, yes. But it was a geopolitical conflict, ultimately. Especially by 1980s, it had everyone had polarized to being on one side or the other, and you were either this or that, and and also like the 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 ideology had grown to go beyond just saying a communist capitalist. It was now becoming a us them evil good on both sides to an extent. Now, it was, now it, it was like that during earlier parts of the Cold War as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, uh, we can discuss this in a later podcast. Well, and to be fair, like for anyone who's screaming, like yeah, Stalin also killed more people than. Uh, Hitler, arguably. I mean, not uh, not even that arguably. Uh, like so, definitely, Soviet Russia was a horrific state that did horrible things to its people and the gulags and all that. I don't want to necessarily defend the what the communist government was doing. Right. Um, right. No. 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 That's, that's, that's but it was the core ideology of the two. And I mean, and once again, to play devil's advocate, you can always say that the amount of economic oppression that capitalism places on not only its own people but people around the world under its uh, sway is you know blah 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 right it's all kind of the eye of the beholder all people are pushed under oppression under these massive global regimes whatever their ideology is well i mean you know the beginnings of the cold war really were actions by stalin in terms of seizing eastern europe okay and not allowing free democratic elections there and putting that as part of the soviet bloc right so extending russia into a soviet bloc extending and extending russia into a soviet bloc uh they had been attacked, if you remember, previously by Germany uh, mm-hmm. twice, mm-hmm. and then the Second World War suffered over 20 million casualties. Yeah, and so this was a country that uh, was frightened of uh, outside intervention. Right, and they had just taken over much of Eastern Europe in the war effort. Uh, they, so uh, they effectively controlled it because of occupation. That's basically right, yes, yes. In terms of their push to Germany, they captured uh, all the classic states of uh, Eastern and much of Central Europe. And so then basically the start of the Cold War was them just saying, how about we leave our troops here and take control? That's a, that's a, that's effectively right. If yes, we're going to really yes. simplify it down. Yes, and then there was a full breakdown of relations resulting in, say, the Berlin, Air, the, uh, Berlin Airlift, for example. Uh, this is cutting off uh, the Western Allies. This is 1949. Mm-hmm. And you have the Korean War mm-hmm. uh, taking place later on, which we can discuss at a different point. Yeah, it is very interesting that like after after all this war in Europe, the conflict between communism and, and everyone says the West, but I'm going to say capitalism for the sake of this argument. Um, they decided they don't want to fight anymore in Europe. They're going to fight over in the, <laughs> on uh, on eastern side of the world in in uh what would you at that point have called the orient right well uh 1949 uh was uh, uh, a very consequential year because it was not only the year where the soviet union exploded their first atomic bomb mm-hmm. but it was also the year that mao effectively pushed uh, general chiang kai-shek to taiwan and took over china and made it into a communist country yeah, that's a wonderful uh, thing to talk about. That's what led someday. to the Red Scare in the United States and McCarthyism for a certain period of time. Right, because what? Yeah, that's I learned that a, a little while ago. Is is uh, we kind of forget, or I don't know if we were ever taught necessarily in our public schools that Taiwan, the way that they 
talk about themselves as a government. And the origin of that government really was a republic that was based in Beijing. That was the Chinese Republic. That was a democratic republic they were trying to form. And within 10, and they were allies with the Communist Party in ousting the Japanese occupation uh, during that war. So when Jap Japan failed, or when Japan was defeated, I should say, by the Americans, uh, the the outcome of that was China finally being able to oust Japanese occupation on mainland China. And they did this with a combination of uh, communist and capitalist, just like everyone kind of being pro-Chinese. Uh, you got a democratic republic installed to take over from the imperial empire of China, and they lasted for only 10 years before the communists then ousted them, forced them down onto the island of Taiwan, where they still consider themselves the original republic government of China. Well, well they call themselves the Republic of China, yes. Now, uh, it was more of a military authoritarian government for a number of decades before eventually they became more democratic and liberalized in the 1970s. Okay. Uh, but uh, in terms of the permanent five members of the Security Council, uh, for a long, long time, the United States didn't recognize uh, the People's Republic of China mm -hmm. as being a permanent member of the Security Council. They right. recognized Taiwan as being a permanent member of the Security Council. Interesting. Yeah, I never knew when I was, I, I never knew until I started uh, training in traditional Chinese opera. Um, that Taiwan wasn't just its own government, but was actually a uh, previous ousted Chinese regime. Yes. I had no idea. Yes. So that was an interesting... Yes, it was effectively the Kuomintang. Uh, this I, is the that's party it. of General Chiang Kai-shek. But and, uh, yeah, okay. jumping back to the Cold War becoming hot again... In the 80s. This was really had to do with uh, the election of Ronald Reagan. Okay. And it was not... It was this not is why actors shouldn't be presidents? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, well, you, you can well, ignore well, that. We can have a separate debate as to <laughs> the presidency of Ronald Reagan and whether he was a good president or or not a good president. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but he was certainly an adamantine anti-communist. Right. And so not only was his rhetoric uh, very much different from that of the Carter government and uh, the Nixon government before him, mm -hmm. uh, like in the sense that, you know, it sounded as if he was an interventionist mm -hmm. as opposed to just... Uh, someone who's advocating for a policy of containment. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. there's containing the Soviet Union, preventing yeah. uh, more states from becoming communist, mm -hmm. or there's intervention and rollback. Right. Which is actually rolling back uh, communism in various states. Right. And so the Soviet Union was quite, was quite concerned about that, not to mention Reagan's unprecedented military buildup. Oh, he continued uh, to... Okay. But, well, well, an unprecedented peacetime military buildup. Right. Right. Uh, which was uh, the largest in American history in terms of what they were spending hundreds of billions of dollars on defense every year. In fact, the U.S. military today is still the Reagan military. Interesting. At the end of the Cold War, they canceled a number of programs uh, for to, to uh, replace the equipment that Reagan had uh, purchased. Hmm. And so today, uh, you know, U.S. Arleigh like Burke class destroyers, Emmett's class aircraft carriers. They're all so 80s era. class cruisers, uh, you know, uh, the M1A1 tank, for example. Yeah. Uh, these were all Reagan programs. So, so the vast majority of the military, the American military right now is early 1980s technology, mid-1980s technology? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of it is. Uh, they've certainly revolutionized in terms of uh, various other elements of technology. Right. Certainly, like, you know, drones, for example. Yeah. 
and they've obviously upgraded uh, much of the older technology. I'm sure massive upgrades, and but the sure, sure, yes, the basic yes, kind yes. of the hulls, the chassis, all this stuff is yes. Uh, although they are building new submarines, and uh, there was recently a contract awarded to replace the ballistic missile boats that uh, were built during the Reagan administration, the, the Ohio class okay. ballistic missile boat. Okay, so this is the setup. What's this? What's this crisis? So in 1983, uh, there was an incident where uh, KAL-007, this is a Korean airliner, uh, was uh, shot down near Kamchatka. Okay. Is that Uh, in Korea? uh, It was, it was, the the aircraft steered off course and flew into Soviet territory. Okay. It was just on a normal route, uh, Mm -hmm. but it was, but it was shot down. A South Korean? uh, Airliner. Okay. Yes. It was shot down by uh, Soviet military forces. Okay. Uh, who didn't think that this was a civilian airliner? They never would have done it otherwise. They just saw it on radar, or whatever. Yes, mm-hmm. but this again just kind of added to heightened tensions during the Cold War because sure. uh, you know the Western world saw this as uh, a despicable act, unprompted attack on civilian life, effectively yeah. the murder of two hundred and fifty civilians on this uh, on this on this airliner. Right, and we're also seeing a booming international business trade, and Korea and Japan are getting into American business and industry and Americans are traveling back and forth. And if the Soviets are just going to start shooting down civilian aircraft. Sure. Yeah. And so I'm just mentioning, this is just kind of one incident, which, you know, heightened tensions during, during that era. Yeah. Uh, but in, by 1983, Yuri Andropov, uh, was the premier of the Soviet Union. Okay. Uh, he was, uh, formerly the head of the KGB. Mm-hmm. And he instituted... Uh, oh, I know another guy who used to be in the KGB that's running Russia right now. <laughs> Anyways. Well, that's uh, very, very true. Yes, <laughs> certainly. Okay, so Yuri. Uh, so he uh, was quite scared about an American sneak attack against the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And instituted a program called uh, Project Rian, uh, which uh, had Soviet agents throughout the United States uh, and... Uh, in Germany, uh, the UK, France, uh, other American allies, mm-hmm. uh, to try to gather intelligence to confirm as to whether an attack was potentially going to take place. Okay. And uh, part of the problem with uh, KGB intelligence at the time is, unlike the CIA, the KGB just wanted raw intelligence and not so much opinionated intelligence. Hmm. And so this raw intelligence about, you know, military buildup, military movement, that sort of thing, instead of getting actual opinions, as the American CIA did, in hmm. terms of what we think is actually happening here. Right. What does it mean? Yes. Quantitative versus qualitative. Yes. Uh-huh. And so the Soviets came to the conclusion that the most likely time for a, a Western sneak attack would be under the cover of a military exercise. Makes sense. Right, because they're carrying out a military exercise. You've but, mobilized but, but, everyone. But it turns out that it's it's real. Right. Yeah. And in 1983, uh, the U.S. Uh, and its European allies uh, launched uh, an exercise called Able Archer 83. Okay. And this was effectively to uh, test the systems whereby everything would get ready for a potential counterattack against the Soviet Union using nuclear forces. Okay. Uh, the Soviets were aware of this. So this is the type of thing that 
the West would call up Soviet Russia and say, hey, guys, we're doing uh, some training exercises. Please don't consider it a big deal. Yes, yes. Uh, but the Soviets uh, were, again, concerned about a potential sneak attack based off of an uh, exercise like this. Right, right. And Andropov in particular uh, was quite paranoid about a potential attack. Oh, right? Yuri. Again, because, because of Reagan's rhetoric, Reagan's military built up. Right, uh, right. They compared him to Hitler, for example. Wow. Uh, they, they, were, they, they, were, they were very concerned about this individual. Okay. Uh, that he was changing the dynamics of the Cold War. Right. And uh, in terms of Able Archer 83, well, the Soviets uh, put their military forces on highest possible alert. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's been argued that uh, this was the closest time where there was a potential for the Soviets to attack uh, once uh, orders had been given under Able Archer. These would have been fake orders, just as part of an exercise mm-hmm. to launch missiles against the Soviet Union. Right. That the Soviet Union would preempt them. And so mm. during Able Archer, uh, a lot of people don't know, but there's an underground railroad under the Kremlin. Okay. And so they evacuated Andropov and others. Yeah. And Soviet uh, missiles were put on the highest possible alert. Everything was fueled, pointed, ready to go. Everything was fueled, pointed, ready to go. And at the time, uh, the Soviets had a huge number of SS-20 medium-range missiles. Uh, that were facing Western Europe. These are all nuclear warheads. Uh, they, they all nuclear warheads, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the Allies uh, had uh, Pershing two missiles, okay. which were also facing off against those SS-20s. And the Pershing missile uh, could hit Moscow within seven minutes. Wow. And so it was, and so it was considered to be a first-strike weapon. Yeah. What re- this actually goes back to the uh, dual-track policy of the Jimmy Carter government. This okay. is when the Soviet Union started putting in these missiles in place. Uh-huh. NATO said, if you don't remove these missiles within two years, then we're going to have to start installing our own medium-range missiles. And then they did. And, and then they did. Okay. Uh, but these missiles, uh, the Pershing II, uh, was potentially a first-strike weapon. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so you had uh, spies, uh, Soviet spies, who were actually radioing back to Moscow saying that, uh, you know, you guys got to calm down here because there was a lot of, you know, back and forth traffic about, you know, concern about this exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, you had a number of uh, Soviet spies, uh, including in the Stasi. Uh, this is uh, the Eastern the Eastern German secret police uh, saying, you know, there is no attack coming. This is just an exercise. But the Soviets didn't know that. And or so they put, didn't believe it. And so put their forces on highest possible alert. Right. Yes. And so if something had gone wrong during that time period, well, then there could have been a Soviet attack to try to preempt the Americans. And define go wrong. Uh, if the principles had been involved, say Ronald Reagan himself, mm-hmm. uh, Margaret Thatcher amongst others mm-hmm. in this, and the principles uh, had been evacuated, mm-hmm. that could have been seen as something that uh, would have been potential precursor to a first strike so if ronald reagan had kind of quote unquote out of the blue evacuated the white house the russians 
during this Abel Archer or Margaret Thatcher or any of these major political figures of the West, sure, then Russia would have seen that evacuation as evidence that Abel Archer wasn't a training exercise and they would have launched a first strike. They potentially could have launched a first strike, yes. Uh, and they put their forces at the highest possible alert. And this was all without uh, which, Western... Which is also very, very dangerous, right? When you put your forces at the highest possible alert, this means that everything is fueled, it's ready to go. And you're waiting to shoot. Yes, and uh, somebody could have made a mistake, but maybe there may, may, may have been a mistake in communication might have gone out, and uh, somebody might have fired off some weapons. Right, because when you're at that high level, all it takes is one commander at one silo or one pilot or one anyone sure. to sure. to overreact or to push a button. Or... And we're also now talking about a time of equality uh, in terms of... Uh, the nuclear weapon status of the Soviet Union and, and the United States both had tens of thousands of nuclear warheads. It would have just killed all of this. Was all the height of the Cold War, yeah. and uh, this could have resulted in a nuclear winter and uh, effectively the apocalypse. Right. Wow. But luckily, that didn't happen. Uh, luckily, of course, that did not happen. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but when Ronald Reagan found out about uh, through intelligence sources afterwards that the Soviet Union was uh, extremely frightened of this. He was actually shocked. Really? Uh, because he never thought that they would think that America would ever launch a first strike. So, and uh, this actually partly led to a lessening of tensions in the Cold War. Mm. And uh, when uh, Gorbachev uh, succeeded Andropov after his death, mm -hmm. uh, Ronald Reagan uh, was more inclined to engage with the Soviet Union for the first time wow. in terms of peace talks. Well, that shows that Firstly, my first reaction is that Reagan had absolutely no idea who he was dealing with when he was escalating tensions. He was just uh, uh, he did, he did not, dehumanizing uh, and antagonizing a, an enemy that he didn't understand. And That is absolutely correct, by the way. Absolutely correct. He, he did not understand the Soviet Union. Which is a terrifying thing to do when they have nuclear weapons. But the other side is that uh, that near-apocalyptic event actually seems he seems to have learned from it. Uh, the Americans did learn from that, yes, uh, and uh, more lines of communications were opened up, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually this led to peace talks at Rehovec in 1985, wow. and uh, in 1987 uh, they signed uh, the INF Treaty, uh, Intermediate uh, Nuclear Forces Treaty, mm -hmm. which effectively removed those SS-20s that were facing Western Europe and removed the Pershing missiles. Okay. Wow. And the U.S. recently withdrew from that treaty. Actually, this is uh, this is modern news. Yeah, yeah. I think that's another another topic that uh, we can talk about. Kind of the re-escalation of the Cold War, as it were. Yeah. Which seems yes. to be happening right now. But uh, during the Reagan era, uh, during the er during the early part of the Reagan era, there were there was a number of close calls. But Abel Archer eighty three really put a scare into the Soviet Union. Which is very interesting. So once again, it's one of these things that you can only really understand years after once both sides have released information or the, the historians have been able to communicate to each other when you actually say, oh, but yeah, by the way, uh, you know that thing you were doing that you didn't think was a big deal? Yeah, we were ready to nuke the fuck out of you. <laughs> and, and by the way, na the National Security Advisor uh, to Ronald Reagan at the time, Bud McFarland, uh, almost had an inkling that something was wrong. And uh, the principals, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, 
uh, Francois Mitterrand, amongst others, were to take part in this exercise, mm. he, he quashed that, actually. Really? Yes. Once again... He, he thought it would be too dangerous and, and, and that it would look too much like... A real thing. Like, like, like a potential real thing. Yes. So he said, hey guys, this is a, just a training exercise. How about you stay and do your jobs? Yes. <laughs> There was also, in 1983, uh, a very, very close call. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, there's a documentary about it called The Man Who Saved the World. And uh, this was at uh, an early warning uh, station uh, near the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. uh, where by they were monitoring uh, satellites, which, were, which would detect nuclear launches. And mm-hmm. the commander uh, of that uh, site, uh, Stanislav Petrov, uh, he had been trained that if there was to be an attack by the United States, well, then it would be an all-out attack and that there'd be a thousand missiles raining in. Right. And what happened is that uh, the sun was shining off the... This all sounds bizarre. <laughs> but the sun was shining off the clouds in a certain way that when the satellites detected this, it appeared to be nuclear launches from the United States. Like many? Just a handful. It's so, big boy, sir. And, and he's so, back. And so at first... <laughs> well, in many ways, he's never left. <laughs> well, in many ways, he's never left. Yes, he still the same quality service. And uh, high-quality hamburgers, yes. But, uh, Pe- but uh, Petrov... Uh, uh, what happened is that effectively this early warning station suddenly, suddenly the computers went nuts and were flashing that there was that there was a missile attack in Russia that there was a missile attack from the United States uh, against Russia mm-hmm. at this early and, warning. And at first, it showed there was one missile, mm-hmm. and then it later showed that there was five missiles were coming in. Okay. Now, had Petrov reported this to the Kremlin? Yeah. They might have considered this to be a first oh, strike, a first strike, uh, yeah. and it could have resulted in a immediate retaliatory, massive retali- yeah. retaliation against the United States. Petrov uh, effectively said to his guys, uh, "He got in trouble for this later on really? for not reporting this up the chain of command as he was supposed to." Right. But uh, because of his earlier training that if there was to be attack, it would be an all-out attack, yeah. uh, he effectively unplugged the entire computer system and wow. uh, replugged it back in. He's like, why don't we just make sure this isn't a glitch? That's effectively what happened, yes. And so he decided not to report that missiles were coming in, mm-hmm. unplugged the system, and then uh, when it was kind of re-all... Rebooted. When it, when it was rebooted, yeah. Uh, it showed that there was no missile attack after all. It was just a uh, misinterpretation. But, but, but because of the tensions at the time, yeah. had he reported this to the Kremlin, well, then yeah. there could have been all out war. Such an example of uh, the importance of communication and how, like the broken telephone, right? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So you can kind of look at, say, Petrov and uh, the executive officer on that uh, Russian submersible, as we talked yeah. about earlier, as being two individuals who arguably save the world well and the funny thing is when you look at the cold war and and how close we got and you look at the few individuals who kind of prevented it so far obviously we haven't covered everything and we won't but uh we have a couple of high level americans who arguably offered 
first of all, in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, a third option, a non-firing option to Kennedy, uh, which was an effective single person who did something that created a, a uh, that prevented what could have been a lead up to war. Well, Kennedy was looking for other options. Right. He was only presented with his by his military chiefs with two options. And the other person who uh, who decided to not involve the principals in Abel Archer and kind of said we shouldn't do this. Uh, Bud uh, McFarland, yes. Yeah. But on the other side, way far more directly, you could argue, are these individual Russians or Soviets who who through their individual could you say uh, critical thinking, courage, whatever you want to say, um, were I mean, I think that's a good way to put it. Actually, yes. Um, were instrumental in preventing full-scale global apocalypse, as you said. Uh, that's certainly the case. Yes, uh, had that American aircraft carrier been destroyed by a nuclear torpedo, well, that would have resulted in war between the two countries. Yeah, and obviously, had Petrov uh, reported the missile attack to the Kremlin. Mm -hmm. At the time of heightened tensions and heightened paranoia, mm -hmm. uh, they may have launched a full-scale attack on the United States, resulting in, obviously, a retaliatory response against the Soviet Union. The United States operated with a policy of launch on warning, in the sense that if they saw that missiles were on the radar screen, mm -hmm. then they would fire at that point. They right. wouldn't, wouldn't wait for the missiles hit. Of course. Well, I think I, I want to wrap it up in this. Uh, I think that's a really good place to wrap it up and also wrap it up with the kind of idea that um, even on a global standoff scale uh, where two sides are pointing literally thousands of nuclear weapons at each other, which could wipe out all all large large scale life on the planet, that it really comes down to individuals thinking for themselves, using their own judgment, being uh, critical of orders which might result in wide-scale death, uh, so therefore being considerate of the uh, greater impact of their personal decisions, even if it conflicts with their standing obligations to their superiors or whatever. Um, and it takes that type of individual courage uh, and willingness to uh, use personal empathy and a capacity to see the broader impact of one's actions that really are what save the world. Well, I don't disagree with that, yes. I think we need a lot more of that right now. Oh, yes, it came down to a lot of individuals and... Uh... And I think in many ways we'll see, you know, maybe in 50 years we're going to look back and we're going to look at a number of people who have acted in similar ways during, um, let's say, contemporary administrations. Well, we'll have to see what happens with crises ahead, yes. But mm -hmm. uh, nuclear weapons are, pro are pro proliferated Prolific. around the world. Yeah. Uh, and there's still uh, very much a danger of uh, a nuclear war taking place. Mm-hmm. But individuals at all levels of uh, of the government and the military and society can be instrumental in preventing war. Sure. Sure. So I think that's a great place to end. That's absolutely the case. And cool. uh, fair enough on that. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you again for coming back, Churden. Well, thank you for having me. Always. Uh, always, uh, always a pleasure. 
Yeah, I'm excited to uh, have another talk, hopefully in the next week or so. Most definitely. And um, until then, thanks one and all for listening. Until then, thank you. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> thank you again for listening to The Annex. My name is Coy, and my guest was Simon Chernin today. And I hope you join us next time when we uh, come back to talk some more exciting history. So until then, subscribe, like, share, comment, send Simon some emails. We'll see you next week. <laughs>